We are noticing the great chapter of Romans 6, having seen uh, the first 14 verses this morning and having a chance now to look into verses 15 to 23 of Romans 6. Let me start by way of review, and then we'll go to a preview of tonight's verses. By way of review, Romans 6, 1 to 14 covers sanctification's basis, the basis upon which God sets you and me apart for his possession and use. And that basis for sanctification is union with Christ. This is a position. If you are saved, you have the great position of being united with Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. That was this morning's thrust in verses 1 to 14. This evening, as we look at verses 15 to 23, we are going to see sanctification's practice. Sanctification's practice. And what we're going to see is that sanctification's practice is slavery to righteousness. Slavery to righteousness. This is a conduct. So the first 14 verses talk about a position, our union with Christ. Tonight's verses talk about a conduct, slavery to righteousness. To break down verses 15 to 23 a little further, there's a question, there's an answer, and then two types of slaveries are contrasted. Again, in 15 to 23, there's a question, there's an answer, and then two varieties of slaveries are contrasted. So let's start with the question. The question is, may we occasionally plan to sin? May we occasionally plan to sin? Look at verse 15, first half. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Sin here is in the aorist tense. The aorist tense is like a glob of action. Like, ladies, when you are making chocolate chip cookies and you have the batter all prepared and you take some of that batter and you glob it on the baking tray. It's that kind of action. It's a completed glob, but you might glob again. The question is, may we occasionally plan to sin? And the answer is going to come in the second part of verse 15, which we'll get to in a moment. But really the question, can a believer occasionally plan to sin, starts back in chapter 5, verse 20. In chapter 5, verse 20, we read, And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So some Christians say, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So is it okay to glob to occasionally sin? Well, 520's fact led to chapter 6, verse 1's question along a similar line. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Folks thinking along these lines, believers thinking along these lines, basically are asking, is it okay to occasionally uh, plan to sin? 
6.14, the last verse of this morning's text, 6.14, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. That fact, that we are not under law, but now under grace, leads to the next verse's question. Why not sin from time to time? What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? In other words, since habitual sin is ruled out based on our union with Christ, some believers ask, is occasional, planned sin okay? Since grace superabounds in the face of sin. John MacArthur was on an airplane with a Muslim going to San Antonio, Texas. He had his Bible open, John did, and he was studying the word for preaching it down in San Antonio. And the Muslim said, what are you doing? Is that a Bible? Yes, it's a Bible. Do you know what's in the Bible? Yes, I know what's in the Bible. I'm wondering about peace with God. John said, I can tell you what the Bible says about peace with God. And he began to tell him the gospel. And then John turned it on him and said, you're Muslim. Yes, I'm a Muslim. What do you think about sin? Is there a place for sin in the Muslim faith? You have recognized that there are sins. Oh, yes. There are many sins, too many for me to count. And John said, is there forgiveness for sin in your faith, the Muslim faith? No, sin is not forgivable, and you go to a very bad place after you sin. And John MacArthur said, do you ever sin? He said, as a matter of fact, I met a woman in San Antonio a couple of months ago. We've been in contact with each other, and I'm flying to San Antonio to do some sins with her. John went on to invite him to trust Christ. He didn't trust Christ. Dr. MacArthur gave him lots of uh, literature by mail and email, but he didn't hear back from him. But it's not just Muslims who fly to San Antonio to do sins. Sometimes believers abuse God's grace and say, I can occasionally sin. I can glop that sin on the cookie uh, baking tray because of grace. And so the question of our passage is, may we occasionally plan to sin? Please look at verses 14 and 15 to see the emphatic answer, no. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. May it never be. May it never be. Some versions translate meganoito, God forbid. Regardless of how it's translated, this is the strongest possible negative in Koine Greek of the New Testament. May it never be, God forbid. In short, it's ridiculous to think that as a believer, you may occasionally plan to sin because you're under grace. 
and receive God's sure forgiveness. That is ridiculous thinking. That is absurd thinking. Here's why. Occasional planned sin is ridiculous and absurd and totally out of the question for you and me as believers because we have changed masters. We are under new management. We have changed masters by trusting Jesus to be our Lord and Savior. We are under new management. Verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? We ought never to think it appropriate to plan occasional sin because we've changed masters and we are under new management. Before the Apostle Paul was born, there was a Roman law which stated that no freeborn man could be enslaved. Therefore, a man could sell himself into slavery, collect the proceeds, and then have a friend come and attest to his status as a freeborn man, and he would have to be released at once, but kept the money. This caused havoc in the Roman Empire and the Roman economy, which was well-oiled by its use of slave labor. Therefore, just before Paul's day, a new law was enacted. Any man who sold himself into slavery could no longer claim the freedom of his position later. The law could no longer help him. It was therefore clear to Paul's readers here in Romans, that to whom you present yourselves as slaves for obedience, his slave you are. That's verse 16 again. And so we go on. Uh, Verses 16 and 17 teach a very important moral principle, an important moral principle, and this is the principle, we become slaves of whom or of what we obey. We become slaves of whom we obey. We become slaves of what we obey. Verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. The principle is, we become slaves of whom we obey, or we become slaves of what we obey. And as Christians, we cannot obey sin without saying, I'm living denying that Christ is my master. And when I am living with the law of sin and death as my master, a Christian cannot say, I'm planning to occasionally sin without having to face the fact that Christ is not that person's master. And that person is 
allowing the law of sin and death, that downward pull into sins, plural, to rule and reign. The other side of the same coin, as Christians, when we can say, I am living with Christ as my master, who became my master when I responded to the gospel and believed in Jesus. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Verse 18, we go on. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we should never occasionally plan to sin since, because, due to the fact that slaves of God and of God's righteousness is the victory we have to live out in Christ. Put another way, as believers, our obedient response to the gospel, that is our faith in Christ for salvation, frees us from slavery to sin. And it introduces us to slavery to righteousness. When we respond to the gospel and to Jesus Christ and trust him as Lord and Savior, it frees us up from being slaves to sin as we once were before conversion, and it introduces us to slavery to righteousness. Someone has said, as we yield to sin, we are bound by chains of our own making. And so I hope you heard it, that we don't actually have the option of being a slave or not being a slave. The options before us is to be the slave of the law of sin and death or the slave of Jesus Christ. Nobody's a free agent. You're a slave of one or the other. We don't have the option of not being a slave. Our only option is whether we will live as a slave of sin as our principle, or whether we will live as the slave of righteousness as the Holy Spirit within us makes that possible. And so it may surprise you, it may rub you the wrong way, it may be something you've never heard before, but at no time can we actually be our own masters. At no time are we actually free agents. Before conversion, sin was our master. And after conversion, God and his righteousness are to be our master unless our flesh is something we revert to. Now watch this. Whereas we actually are never our own masters, there are times when we think we are our own masters. Some years ago in Los Angeles, there was a man walking down the street with a sign on his shoulders. The front of it said, I'm a slave for Christ. And on the back of his sign, as he passed you, you read on the back of his sign, whose slave are you? It's a good question. It's a very good question. Because all of us are slaves to one or the other of these two masters, sin or righteousness. We have no other choices. And by the way, the very nature of our humanity 
is that we are made to serve and to be controlled by forces beyond our own power. That's part of being a free moral agent made in the image of God. So it may surprise you, it may rub you the wrong way, it may be new to you, but at no time can we actually be our own masters, at no time can we actually function as spiritual free agents. Before conversion, sin was our master, and after conversion, God and his righteousness are our master, unless in our flesh we revert to living with sin as our master. Now, please watch this. Whereas we actually are never our own masters, we are, there are times when we think we are. When we do think that we are our own masters, actually we are living with sin as our master. When I think that I can plan to occasionally sin because I am my own master, I have reverted to the default position of being a slave to the law of sin and death. And this is what Romans 6.12 is warning about. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And then verse 19 of chapter 6. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. When Paul says that I'm speaking in human terms in verse 19, he's referring to the then everyday human illustration of literal slaves and literal masters in the Roman Empire. And so spiritually speaking, you as a believer are not compelled to be a slave of sin anymore, but rather you are a voluntary slave to Christ and to righteousness as you let the Spirit of God empower and guide and control you for that living. Now, please note something else, that both slavery to sin and slavery to righteousness have growing products that are very different. Slavery to sin's growing product is increasing wickedness. If you as a Christian present yourself to the law of sin and death and revert and live out of your flesh, the growing product of your choices and your living will be increasing wickedness. We were talking in the pre-service prayer meeting for families and marriages that we needed to repent as a church and as individuals and as a Christian evangelical community in the Bahamaland when we have lived in our flesh as believers and increasing wickedness has been the product of our lives. And people look at us and say, if that's Christianity, I want nothing to do with it. When... Believers present themselves in a foolhardy way to the law of sin and death as master, then increasing wickedness is the product of that life. But on the other hand, when Christians present themselves in the power of the Holy Spirit as slaves to righteousness, there's a different growing product. It's increasing holiness. That's what the person who works at your workplace who doesn't know Jesus Christ needs to see, your increasing holiness. That's what your spouse who is not yet a Christian, needs to see increasing holiness. 
That's what your teacher at the College of the Bahamas or in high school or in elementary school who doesn't know Jesus, that's what she needs to see. She needs to see your increasing holiness. When I transact at Super Value and Fresh Market and all the places I transact, what they need to see in the senior pastor teacher of Calvary Bible Church is increasing holiness. And so slavery to sin's growing product is increasing wickedness, while slavery to righteousness's growing product is increasing holiness. And these facts really are a restatement and an expansion of verse 13 in this chapter. See it? Verse 13. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The toolbox we talked about this morning, your eyes, your ears, your mouth, your hands, your feet, the tools, present them, no longer present them as instruments of unrighteousness, but instead present the tools in your toolbox to God as those alive from the dead. It's our choice. Verse 19 Chapter 6, am I speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh? For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. The basis of sanctification is to present yourself to the right master. It all ties together this morning's passage, of course, and tonight's. And so what have we seen so far in Romans 6, 15 to 18? We've seen a question, and we have seen an answer to that question. The question we have seen is, may we occasionally plan to sin? The answer is no way. Since, number one, we become slaves of whom or of what we obey. May we occasionally plan to sin? No way. Second reason, we obeyed God when we responded to the gospel. Why stop obeying God after conversion? May we occasionally plan to sin? No way. Since three, we've become slaves to God and his righteousness. Uh, Growing up in Canada, uh, my best friend, John Anderson, lived out every Canadian boy's dream a dream that probably only one Canadian boy in 30,000 or more realizes. John Anderson became a professional hockey player, and he played for the NHL Toronto Maple Leafs. I remember when he signed his first professional contract. It was all very heady, and he had lots of money, man. He had lots of money all of a sudden. He had fast cars he bought. He had fast boats he bought. But as that summer unfolded after he signed that first professional hockey contract and he was to go to his first training camp in the fall, in the summer when I was at his cottage on the lake, my friend who loved water skiing, who loved speedboat racing on the lake, didn't either. He bought a fast boat with the money, the signing bonus, but he never used it. (laughs) You know why? Because it was in his hockey contract that he couldn't. He couldn't do any risky activity or sport 
that could injure him, except if he did, he'd void his contract. My friend was seemingly financially free, but he was actually a willing slave of his master, the Tronome Police. Now we move on to the last verses in our passage, the last section of the passage tonight. It's two slaveries contrasted. Uh, Two slaveries contrasted, verses 19 to 23. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now presenting your members, present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit... Were you then deriving from the things of which you are now shamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. And the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Please look at the columns if you have an outline, sermon outline on the back. Please look at the columns on your sermon outline sheets. In these columns, we will contrast slavery to sin and slavery to righteousness. Will you please notice that the slavery to sin began at our births when you were born from your mom? Slavery to sin began at our births. That's in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 6. And in contrast to this, your slavery to righteousness began at your rebirth. And that's the other point of verses 17 and 18. Moving on, what produces slavery to sin and slavery to righteousness? Look at verse 19 again. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. What produces slavery to sin and what produces slavery to righteousness? Increased wickedness produces slavery to sin. While it is increased holiness, also called sanctification, which produces slavery to righteousness. It's not that complicated. What produces slavery to sin for you and me as believers? If we let increased wickedness be part of our lifestyle. What causes us as believers to have a willing slavery to righteousness, pursuing increased holiness and sanctification, cooperating with God the Holy Spirit. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. The idea here is when you were mastered by sin, you were uncontrolled by righteousness. When you were mastered by sin, you were uncontrolled by righteousness. And the implication of that is now that you are mastered by righteousness, be uncontrolled by sin. 
Now that you as a believer can and should be mastered by righteousness, then don't be controlled by the law of sin and death. When the law of sin and death says jump, don't say how high. You like chess? The pawn of sin. The believer who is just a pawn on the chessboard of life, moved around by the law of sin and death, that believer is the enemy of righteousness. The pawn of sin is the enemy of righteousness. It is impossible to be the slave of both sin and righteousness at the same time. Impossible. It is impossible for me at the same time to be both the slave of sin and the slave of righteousness. And I go between the two, nanosecond to nanosecond, to be honest with you. It's impossible to be the slave of both sin and righteousness at the same time. Impossible. This is what Matthew 6, 24 is teaching in the context of money. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. It's impossible for me or you as believers to at the same time be a slave of sin and a slave of righteousness. It's like an on-off switch. When it's on, it's not off. When it's off, it's not on. It's impossible for every Christian to be at the same time both the, uh, doing the bidding of the master of sin and the bidding of the master of righteousness. On January 3rd, 1944, a long passenger train was transporting over 500 passengers near Lyon, Spain. This train was overloaded and required two engines to carry the load. One engine pulled from the front and another engine pushed from the rear. As the train entered the El Toro Tunnel, the engine in the front stalled and the train came to a halt. The engine in the rear then reversed its thrust and tried to pull the train out of the tunnel. As the rear engine began to pull, the front engine restarted and tried to pull the train in the other direction. Neither engineer had any way to communicate with the other, and they both thought they simply needed more power. Each engine pulled with all its might, but they were unable to budge the passenger train. Finally, after several minutes, the engineers discovered the mistake and the problem But it was too late. Hundreds of passengers died of carbon monoxide poisoning, creating one of the worst train disasters in history. 
your flesh is never going to help you to have victory in Christ. The law of sin and death will never cooperate with the Holy Spirit. They are at odds. They are pulling you in opposite directions, and the question becomes, who do you listen to? Who do you obey? Who do you present the tools of your toolbox to? Verse 21 asks a very useful question. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. Isn't it so true that we are new creations in Christ and in retrospect, we fully understand that there is absolutely no benefit to the fruit which came out of our slavery to sin. My mother says that when she became a Christian, she laughed over what she once cried over, and she cries over what she once laughed over. As new creation in Christ, in retrospect, you can look at your life before Christ, and you can fully understand that there was absolutely no benefit to the fruit which came out of presenting yourself to be a slave to the law of sin and death. And in fact, the fruit of slavery to sin is now completely embarrassing to you. Is to me. In my past. And since in verse 21, the things of which you are now ashamed probably refers to evil thoughts, which lead to evil words, which lead to evil deeds, and which lead to evil habits. The things that we are ashamed of after Christ that we had in our past are things probably like evil thoughts which led to evil words, which led to evil deeds, and which led to evil habits. And in short, the things of which we are now ashamed boils down to the whole ugly package of our old sinful slavery to sin way of Life. If you hold your places in Romans and go to Colossians, having the joy of preaching through Colossians on Echoes of Calvary, our radio broadcast as a church on Sunday mornings, 7.30, a.m. I want you to go to Colossians 3, 5 to 11. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. But Christ is all and in all. 
The outcome of sinful thoughts, words, deeds, and habits is death. We said this morning, death is separation. Three levels of death that came in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God. There's physical death, which is a separation of the human soul and spirit from the dead body. Physical death. There's spiritual death when the spirit of the unsaved person is dead as a doorpost, Ephesians 2.1, but you were dead in your trespasses and sin. There are people walking around us where we work, where we live, where we transact, maybe in our church, who are spiritually dead still. The body is alive, their soul is alive, their personality, but their spirit is dead because they've never become a Christian yet. So there's physical death, there is spiritual death. That spiritual death separates the lost person from a meaningful relationship with God. And then there's everlasting death, which is the separation of the unbeliever's resurrected body, soul, and spirit as one entity from God forever in a place the Bible calls hell. These are the outcomes of sinful thoughts, words, and deeds, and habits that are not under the blood of Christ. Death. Physical death, spiritual death, and everlasting death. And next Paul turns from the past life to the present life, going back to Romans 6. Keep your place in Colossians, though. Romans 6, verse 22. Paul turns from the past life to the present life in verse 22, Romans 6. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Now go back to Colossians 3, and we're going to pick it up where we left off in verse 12 and read through 17. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience... Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now we can... Move away from Colossians. We won't be going back. And look at verse 22 in Romans 6. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Will you notice the past tenses in that verse? Having been freed from sin, enslaved to God. It's beautiful. It's a switch of masters that has already taken place for each of you who are redeemed. A completed switch of masters that's already been affected and enacted at your conversion. It's been done for you. You know, crucifixion 
is always an execution. It's never a suicide. You've been co-crucified with Christ. The old you has been executed by God. Crucifixion is always an execution. Crucifixion is never a suicide. And furthermore, crucifixion is no miss. No one ever survived crucifixion. No one. Capital punishment in the states in the U.S. that have it, if you don't die by the lethal injection, then you are spared. If you don't die by being hung, if you survive for some reason, the trap door doesn't open or whatever, you are set free. There were no misses in crucifixion. That form of execution was fail-proof. There were no survivors from crucifixion. And so again, I say it, our switch of masters has already been made at our conversions. And the fruit of this switch of masters is sanctification. That God would set you apart increasingly, increment by increment, for his own possession and use. Beautiful. We joyfully now can experience the abundant life of which Jesus spoke in John 10.10. I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. We can experience living under the mastery of righteousness. We can experience the joy of an abundant life which the Lord has promised and provided as we cooperate with this divine work of sanctification. Prior to the dramatic political changes in Eastern Europe, those who lived in Eastern Europe before those political reformations were viewed by people who lived in the so-called free world as being very deprived. And those who lived in the so-called free world enjoyed their freedoms in contrast to the Christians behind the Iron Curtain who had no freedoms. The testimonies of Christians who grew strong even under tyranny of communism gave reason to those who had political freedom to reevaluate what freedom is. Philip Hook traveled in Eastern Europe before the Berlin Wall came down and the borders opened up. And he met some followers of Jesus Christ and later made these observations, and I quote, I sat in the midst of some Eastern European young people and was thinking how fortunate I was to be an American and free. As I watched them and learned from them, I realized that they were more free than me. I was seeing freedom as being free to travel, free to own things, free to say things, while they had given up hopes of that and all that the world could materially offer them and had become free to be Christ's people. Hook said, I discovered that in reality, they were far freer than me. Verse 23, of course, is the last verse of the chapter and of our passage this evening. And so, such a well-known and well-loved verse that we all ought to memorize to use in sharing our faith. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
And going back to the two columns which are on your sermon outlines with contrast, slavery to sin with slavery to righteousness, a quick review, very quick. Slavery to sin began with your birth. In contrast, slavery to righteousness began with your rebirth. And slavery to sin produces increased wickedness, but slavery to righteousness produces increased holiness. And here in verse 23, it speaks to the contrast of results. Namely, slavery to sin results in the wage of death. But in contrast, slavery to righteousness results in the gift of eternal life. Did you hear it? Slavery to sin results in the wage of death. Slavery to righteousness results in the gift of eternal life. What a trade. (laughs) What a trade. What an upgrade. A gift for a wage. A gift for a wage. The best for the worst. The best, namely eternal and abundant life and the capacity to respond properly to God for the worst. Physical, spiritual, and everlasting death and imprisonment to the law of sin and death. What a trade. A gift for a wage. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just in closing, consider with me, what is eternal life? Eternal life to begin with is life without beginning and life without ending. It's the life of God. Eternal life has no beginning and eternal life has no ending. But going back to your outlines, Eternal life, it's fellowship with God. You can look at John 17, 3. Eternal life, it's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Please look it up. It's the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. This is eternal life. Romans 5, verse 5. Eternal life is the peace of God which transcends all understanding. Philippians 4, 7. Eternal life is the life of Christ. And Jesus Christ is your Savior, Jesus Christ is your Lord, and Jesus Christ is your life because your old life was executed on a cross with Jesus. And the only life you have left to live is Christ's eternal life. Through your personality, through your web of influence, eternal life is Christ's life which becomes our life, Colossians 3, verse 4. And the big question of Romans 6, as a whole chapter, the big question of the chapter is, are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? That's the question of verse 1. And the big answer of Romans 6 is, may it never be, God forbid, by no means. We could say in the vernacular, are you crazy? And so, brothers and sisters whom I love, When Satan whispers in your ears, why not sin? Why not sin? Go on. You're under God's grace. God will forgive you. When Satan whispers that, we must respond, may it never be, God forbid, by no means, because I'm united with Christ. Romans 6, 1 to 14. And because I am a voluntary slave of righteousness, Romans 6, 15 to 23. 
(laughs) This means that our position in Christ dramatically affects our conduct before Christ. Let me say that again. Your position in Christ dramatically affects your conduct before Christ. That's what the Bahamas needs to see from the church of Jesus Christ. That our position in Christ shapes our conduct before Christ. Our position in Christ, our position in life, affects our conduct. When auto executive Lee Iacocca switched from the Ford Motor Company to the Chrysler Corporation, you can bet he stopped driving a Lincoln Town Car and he started driving a Chrysler New Yorker. And in 1957, when then-President Harry S. Truman visited Disneyland, he refused to ride Dumbo the Elephant traction. Since as a Democrat, he never wanted to be seen associated with the Republicans. Our position needs to affect our conduct. Last thought. Romans 6 as a whole, 23 verses, teach us that we have freedom from sin, but never freedom to sin. We have freedom from sin, but never freedom to sin. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrow cease, tis music in the sinner's ears. His life and health and peace. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Oh, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you've saved us from the law of sin and death. We're free from it being our master. Thank you that we are now able to present our members in our toolbox to you for righteousness. May we, and may the Bahamas, legitimately watching the church like a hawk, see that we not only believe in you, but we live for you. We make choices that resemble Jesus. We love people that are not easy to love. We serve as a form of leadership. We are not expected to be served. Oh God, May our position 
shape our conduct. Thank you that you haven't left us alone as orphans to work out this thing called the Christian life in our own smarts and efforts. But thank you, Lord, that you've given us the precious indwelling Holy Spirit who makes the saying of no to sin and the saying of yes to righteousness possible. And thank you that you not only give us the precious gift of the Holy Spirit, but you give us the book that he wrote, the Bible. Thank you that the author of Scripture lives in the heart of the believer to help us to understand it, but more importantly, perhaps, to live it. To live it. Minister, encouragement to your people. Minister, hope to your children. Minister, peace in the living out of the Christian life to your beloved church. We love you, and we want it to show. And we realize that one of the ways our love for you shows is by loving people. Help us. Be glorified in us. And we'll be careful to give you all the credit. In Jesus, our Savior's name, who is Lord and Savior and life.